Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We had the great privilege of working with Deborah James and her two children, Eloise and Hugo, on the Good Stuff podcast. Deborah has always been a ray of light, providing relentless positivity and hope in the cancer community and a joy for life that she shared through her Instagram account, Bowel Babe. Deborah has spoken out about stopping her active treatment for her cancer and announced her Bowel Babe fund to give more Deborahs more time. This is a Cancer Research UK, Royal Marsden and Bowel Cancer UK fund that raises money for further life-saving research into cancer. We have been beyond moved by Deborah's courage in her darkest days. And if you feel the same, please consider donating the cost of a drink or a coffee to the Bowel Babe Fund. Head to bowelbabe.org and please donate what you can. Today on Castaway, we're joined by podcasting royalty. Pandora Sykes burst onto the scene alongside co-host Dolly Alton with their podcast, The High Low, which amassed over 30 million downloads and was consistently the number one women's weekly podcast. Now, since then, Pandora has gone on to host the incredibly popular true crime podcast, The Missing, which shines a light on cases of missing people that have never been found. But she's also a host of a podcast called Doing It Right and wrote and presented Pieces of Brittany, documenting the life and story of Britney Spears. This is a woman, folks, who knows her way around a podcast. So I was delighted to get into her head and get an insight into which ones meet her high standards. We spoke about a range of genres, like the catfishing true crime podcast, Sweet Bobby, The Week Unwrapped, which gives alternative ways to look at the news. And we also chat about the iconic moment, Anna Buxton and Louis Theroux duetted Yes Sir, I Can Boogie. The falsetto never leaves you. And I know I've talked about it, I think back in series one. And it's so fun how much that podcast is brought up again and again by so many different people. Enjoy this gem of a conversation. Right now, this is Castaway with Pandora Sykes. Pandora, welcome to Castaway. How are you? I am good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I have wanted you on this podcast for so long because I kind of feel like when it comes to podcasts, you are the queen. And I mean, we've had people on the show who have never done a podcast before, you know, someone who's maybe just started recently, or then we have someone who has done every aspect of podcasting that you can imagine. So you are like the queen of podcasting. It is a pleasure to have you on. I definitely don't think I'm the queen as evidenced by the off mic <laughs> behavior of me beforehand trying to get to I didn't grips. say you were the queen of technical <laughs> okay, side fine, of podcasting. Fine, fine. Okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> Where should we even begin? I could probably do a whole podcast talking about the podcast that you've done, but I'm always really, <laughs> literally, I could do hours doing that. But I always think you can learn so much about a person by what they listen to. And I'm always intrigued by by what's on or recommendations and podcasting like books uh, like music a lot of it comes through recommendations but I kind of want to take you back to the first time you ever heard the word podcast used what was it oh the first time I ever heard one well they were around for a while weren't they before yeah. they actually like anything to be fair Instagram was around for a while before it exploded Twitter was around for ages actually before it exploded yeah. and I had heard of podcasts but I didn't listen to any and actually mm. when I started the Hilo I don't think I'd listened to a podcast. I just knew there was this new medium and I was looking to add a different dimension into my job, which was then at the Sunday Times. And I started doing it. Probably would have been a lot better, the beta version of the Hilo, if we had actually listened to any other podcasts. But I honestly can't remember the first podcast I even listened to. It must Mm -hmm. have been something like Adam Buxton, because Mm -hmm. I think that one's been going almost since the beginning. Yeah, and still going stronger. And actually, Adam Buxton is, is on your list of recommendations. Yes, and one yes. actually that has been mentioned a few times by a range of people. I feel like Adam kind of connects to to so many people. We've had Jordan Stevens mention it before. Uh, Dolly, who you know well. Edith Bowman has mentioned it before. What is it about Adam Buxton's podcast that you like so much? He's silly. 
I love silliness. He's really silly and um, he's clever and clever and silly. It just, I mean, it's the best combo. Mm. My favourite episode he's ever done is the one with Louis Theroux when Louis sings. Oh, Have you heard that one? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. I can boogie. Da, 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 da. I don't know the way the rest of it goes. That's not the first time I've sang that song, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, I love it so much. It just makes me happy. I can't remember anything else that they talked about in that episode, and I don't need to because that alone just makes me happy. That's my favourite episode of all time. We were talking about singing, weren't we? Yeah. And one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I don't really, you know, I don't have a strong voice, but I've got this weird thing where I'm quite comfortable in the falsetto uh, range. Oh, really? So that I can... Um, yeah, I like a bit of falsetto. I'm much more comfortable and I feel that my vo- I'm totally in command of my instrument. <laughs> How high do you go? Uh, not as high as I used to, but... <clears throat> I'd rather have an actual song. Um... Well, what's your... Do you do falsetto when you do karaoke? Well, I do, yes. What's, I do... Um, what's your go-to karaoke it's Baccarat, um, yes. yes, Sir, I Can Boogie. Uh-huh. Do you know it? Sure. Have a go. Oh, yes, sir, I can boogie. Yeah. But I need a... Southern song, I, I can, can boogie, 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 <laughs> all night long. Oh, yes, sir, I can boogie, <laughs> but I need a Southern song, I can boogie, boogie, woogie. One of the joys about podcasting, and I will go back to the high-low, because that high-low has been mentioned many times on this particular podcast um, as people's favourite. And people were very upset when you put it to bed. (laughs) We'll talk about that later as well. But I think one reason so many people love Anna Buxton, particularly the episodes with Louis Theroux, because they're actual mates. And sometimes you feel like you really shouldn't be there, but you're kind of just sat Mm. in on this conversation that you're eavesdropping. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's why lots of podcasts are built out of friendships, Mm. aren't they? Because there's a shorthand, which is really useful on audio, I think. I mean, that's what you've got in, fortunately, with Fee and Jane as well, because they really rib each other. Mm -hmm. I just think that works really well. What's really interesting, though, is I think often we think when we hear podcasting friendships that they've been best friends for ages but Mm -hmm. Fee and Jane didn't know each other before they started making Fortunately and I love that if you go back to the beginning which I actually haven't done I would love to if you go back to the beginning I feel like you could sort of trace their friendship over the course of Fortunately. Actually I want to talk about Fortunately with with Fee and Jane because it's compared to Adam Buxton it hasn't been going as long it's since 2017 and it's a it's a very frank look behind the scenes with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover as guests from radio, TV and podcasting share stories that they probably shouldn't. And it's different. It's <laughs> like, like that's the good thing I love about podcasting. A lot of things you say in a podcast, you would probably never say even on radio. Do you think? I feel on radio, when I do interviews on radio, even if it's not live, there's something different about podcasting. Maybe it's less pressure of time, but people kind of chat more and maybe forget the mic after a while. Definitely less pressure with time. I'm always struck by when you go onto the radio and you've gone through all these things that they want you to cover and then you get on and you say about three words and that's all we've got time for. (laughs) It feels so zippy because you get Uh used to just waffling for ages on a podcast, don't you? Uh I think maybe that's true. I mean, Fee and Jane, what is really delicious is Jane is, um, yeah, she's very funny and I I interviewed them uh, last year in Brighton about Mm -hmm. their book you know they were doing their book tour Mm -hmm. and what really made me laugh is in it Jane described the BBC as a middle-aged man on a scooter (laughs) sort of trying to be hip and it just really made me laugh because it's her employer and she was like yeah well doesn't Mm -hmm. mean I I can't still say these things and I find that quite funny. Also, uh, Jane, for me, cause, uh, you know, as a broadcaster and uh, working on uh, Radio 5 Live, she was the first voice on BBC Radio 5 Live yes. when it launched in 1994. So especially on a station which is heavily male dominated, I, I love her for that. Yeah, I, I agree. She's amazing. And what I really love about both of them is I think there's a real tendency in the media for generations to kind of be pitted against one another. Mm. And I don't really have that. I, I don't have that at all, actually, personally. And when you talk to them, neither do they. They're really interested in what people of all ages are doing. They're not sitting there saying, well, we know everything that could possibly be known about broadcasting. They're just really curious and uh, compassionate. And again, quite silly. I think there's a mm-hmm. real theme here, actually. 
Well, I think, and I again, talking about radio, radio sometimes takes itself quite seriously. Not that all radio does, but especially talk form. And especially when you have duos and you have that relationship that works, which again, I think it's brilliant how it works because as you said, they didn't really know each other beforehand. But for you, what do you think makes a great podcast hosting duo coming from someone who was part of a great hosting duo? So I think there is, and I'm sure I didn't always get this right, by the way, but I think there's like a really specific sweet point between uh, familiarity and in-jokes. I Mm. switch off a podcast when the two hosts are going on and on about something they did together that I don't understand and I don't get the joke. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of letting people into your world without it becoming only about the friendship. So the, the friendship isn't the main part of it if that makes sense. It's like, there's a natural camaraderie, but I like it when it's not just about the relationship between them. That's kind of humming along in the background. But I think I'm quite an impatient podcast listener. I switch off so many. I rarely get to the end of a podcast and I'm quite tough, I think, on podcasts, which again is not fair because I've put out a lot of waffle in my time. But anything that I feel is really indulgent, Mm. I get quite bored podcasts as well they vary they can be 20 minutes they can be 10 minutes they can be five minutes they can be two hours three hours four hours five hours is there a specific time frame that you lean towards more or does it depend on time of the day topic I think a podcast can definitely be too long Joe Rogan's are like two hours and three quarters I think Mm. I mean there's an audience for it you know he's Mm. I mean, you didn't get a hundred million from Spotify for no reason, but to me that is extraordinarily long. Apparently half an hour is like the golden standard, but Mm -hmm. I I consistently fail at that. Uh, The missing, which I do is half an hour. I think Britney was near that. Hilo got longer and longer, but what was really kind is that people just seemed to hang on. So we stopped because it's actually hard to make half an hour it goes really quickly so being able to stop trying to get it into half an hour was a really big luxury but yeah I still have in my head that half an hour is like a great length what do you think Uh, you know again which I love doing podcasting compared to radio sometimes when I do radio interviews and and I do a podcast um, that goes out on radio as well and they're 20 minutes but they have to be a certain time each episode of Castaway is whatever it wants to be it can be shorter, it can be longer, and it depends on who the person is, what we're talking about, and it's as long as it needs to be. Yeah, that must be a real relief coming from radio, where it is obviously so incredibly strict on oh, time slots. I, I normally have someone in my ear going, going to news in 10, 9, 8, and you're trying to talk to someone and wrap it up in like 7, 6, 5, like, ah, news! <laughs> you just like shout news sometimes. I love watching that on telly. Oh. We always have Good Morning Britain on in the morning. Yeah, and I you love can tell. when <laughs> someone hasn't unmuted themselves on Zoom. And so then someone's obviously screeched in Susanna's ear, go to the other contributor and let's see what Bernard has to say. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I just find it, I, I love that, knowing what's going on in the earpiece. You started the Hilo with Dolly Alderton. And you say it yourself, you hadn't really listened to a lot of podcasts, if any, when you started that. Why did you start the Hilo? So we actually started one before the Hilo, which thankfully not many people listened to because I'm sure it was a bit of a shambles. I don't know. I've never listened back. But it was called the Pandolly podcast. We didn't mm-hmm. name it. Our then editor at the Sunday Times did. And I was working at Sunday Times Style magazine as a fashion features editor. And I mean, it's quite cliched, really. I was, I think it was about nine months before I was about to turn 30. And I realized that I hadn't I didn't really intend to go so wholesale into fashion. And I really enjoy clothes and creative stuff, but I hadn't meant to be doing a job that was so kind of fully fashion. Mm. And I was really yearning to do more in kind of the culture space. And so I said to my editor, you know, how about I start a podcast with Dolly? She was a dating columnist there. I said, you know, we can take four stories from the week. We'll take a fashion story and a music story, a current affairs story, whatever. And we did that for five months. And it did it did well. I mean, we had absolutely no marketing I wasn't paid to do it. We just like fitted it into the kind of work day. We had about 15,000 listeners. And then when I left the Sunday Times, it was too complicated to figure out how to take something that you've started underneath a media brand. Mm. So we decided to start it again with the two of us. And we were doing everything from the beginning. We didn't have an agent for the first two years. So we would write a list of 40 brands and then we would sort of try and wine them and dine them and persuade them to give us some money so that we could pay our producer. 
but it was very much learning as we went, which I always say is the reason why I think it worked. I think if we'd ever tried to start it as a business, it wouldn't have grown to be one. I think it was just one of those really happy accidents. For me and other people have mentioned on this podcast when talking about it, it's, you know, two friends chatting, kind of what you would be chatting about if you'd met up for a coffee or had a glass of wine about things that you've seen in the news, things that you've seen, you know, cultural, political, but in a, a very digestible format. And I think sometimes it can be a little bit too slick. And not saying that the high wasn't slick, but there's a rawness to the high And I think that's why it worked. There's definitely that kind of happy medium, isn't there? Yeah. Ultimately, we were both journalists. We wanted to put out something that was kind of researched. You know, we would never just mention something that we hadn't read about and had a little look into. And we also had a fact checker because we hated making mistakes, really. That's not to say we didn't make them. I think we apologised on a weekly basis. I'm sure people will tell you if you make a mistake. (laughs) I feel like I spent the beginning of every single episode doing a sort of mea culpa. (laughs) Also, there's words of loads of words I pronounce wrong because I'm better read than I am spoken, for want of Uh a better word. Uh So every week I would say something wrong or another. We did spend a lot of time putting together the script. But I think the key with anything like that is you want it to sound effortless, even Mm. if you're peddling desperately behind the scenes, which is Mm. quite often how it was. So if freezing eggs can buy a woman a little time while she waits for the right partner or she saves some money or she gets her career to a place she'd like to, to have it, I think that's a really, really great thing. However... I think it really has to be the woman's idea and choice. And I do worry that by big corporations saying that they will pay for it, unconsciously a woman will feel a pressure to opt for it. I'm also in two minds. I support anything that helps a woman escape the dreaded cultural as much as biological Mm. time clock. Exactly. With all those societal pressures. But I also feel like our frenzied listener, that having a policy like this creates an atmosphere where it feels like you have to freeze your eggs, Mm. that to have a baby when you are young goes against corporate policy. Well, some people have commented that it's slightly the handmaid's tale, and I do understand where that fear comes from. It feels a little bit like a board of let's face it, probably men, are controlling or coercing a woman's fertility. Mm. And I also think it it actually just makes no sense to go straight to egg freezing as an option before a number of other problems aren't fixed for women in the workplace first. I'd I'd rather they were, yeah, I'd rather they were spending that money on like subsidising nurseries. Exactly. Like, why not first create and foster an environment where women feel they can balance a job with motherhood? Why not provide proper maternity or paternity leave or on-site creches? Side note, will the Hilo be um, paying some subsidised nursery costs for me? (laughs) I'll have to go to the drawing board on that. Did you expect it to have the legacy that it has? Since it stopped as well, people still talk about it. Did you have any idea just what it was going to become at all? At what stage did you realise? No, we really didn't. And I actually think we realised really late that it had touched a nerve, which is when we did our tour, which was 2019. And I remember the tickets went on sale. There were 8,000 tickets and they were all gone within an hour and there were 5,000 people on the waiting list for our London event. Given that we weren't famous, I was really surprised that there was that interest in coming to see us Live, And I think that's when we realised, wow, you know, people really feel like they're part of a community. Mm -hmm. But no, we had no idea. In hindsight, I think, I do think there's a lot of right time, right place. I think Mm -hmm. we were really lucky. But there just wasn't anything there. I don't think there weren't any female two-handers in the culture space. And I don't think there really is now, funnily enough. There's Mm -hmm. lots of brilliant podcasts. Mm -hmm. But I find myself wanting to listen to a weekly podcast between two friends who can fill me in on what's going on in the news. (laughs) I, I need that. And actually, a, a nice way to, because there's only so much news, like for, for both our works, is we need to know what's going on in the world. But there's only so much sometimes news you can actually watch and survive sitting down and listening and watching. But for me, I felt like I even if I was away for a week, if I listened to an episode, I, I knew kind of what was going on in the world. Oh, that's really nice to hear. I mean, I'm a lot less informed than when I did that show, actually. I definitely felt a pressure to be absorbing a lot. Yeah. I'm not great at being constantly switched on. I need to hide away a bit. So that was actually something that was quite hard about the high-low. Both Dolly and I are both like that. You know, we both like to kind of turn our 
phones off. You could kind of leave both of us alone for three days and we'd be absolutely fine with like no phone battery. And obviously when you're doing a show like The Hilo, you can't really do that because there was a lot of, because ostensibly it seems like you're just putting out a show that's like an hour and a half every week, but it's all the, it's all the kind of guff around it. And that was ultimately why we stopped doing it. Um, I miss it hugely and I miss working with one of my best friends every week. And, and what I found really strange actually is I read an article recently that suggested that it had stopped because we weren't friends. And that honestly left me speechless mm-hmm. that anyone would could could think that or would think that and that mm-hmm. we'd have tried to cover that up. You know, Dolly's my son's godmother. We we literally mm-hmm. stopped it because we both have lots of things we want to do. And time is finite. Mm-hmm. And I've got two little kids and Dolly was about to go and spend six months on set. You just can't do everything. Mm-hmm. And so we decided it just like that. You know, we thought, okay, well, let's end it at this date. And we decided it's so long before it ended that we almost forgot to tell anyone. And then about a month before, we were like, oh, my God, we have to tell our agents. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people, uh, you know, as you know, didn't want it to end. But there's something beautiful in having something end on a, on a high rather than a low. Totally. Like some of the great TV series. I always think of The Office or something like that, that it knew when to end. I want to ask about the live podcast shows. How were they to experience? How different were they when you have that audience in front of you? So we didn't do very many of those. I I don't think they're as good, if I'm honest, because yeah. although they're just different, maybe it's just that they're different. They're not really the same in that you're not going to sit there just reading off your notes and re-recording yeah. bits that you fudged because that's really rubbish for your live audience. Yeah. But I found when you listen to live podcasts, it, you know, the, the sound isn't as good and I mm-hmm. really like a kind of crisp audio sound and hearing the audience shuffling around can be a bit distracting. So I think as a totally different thing, they're great. Like I remember we were terrified when we did our tour because we were like, we've sold all these tickets. What in God's name are we going to talk about? It's not really going to work to get on stage and talk about some serious current affairs from the week. Yeah. That's not yeah. really what people want to watch with their glass of warm white wine. So we just kind of lent into the silly side of it mm-hmm. and, you know, came up with just some really random segments. So that was more of an experience than it was sort of a live podcast. Yeah, I think live podcasts are tricky, if I'm honest. That's not that I don't think they work, but they're mm-hmm. just a very different beast. Well, it's just, it's crazy how big they are now. I feel with any successful podcast, there's immediately, you go on that tour and, and sometimes so many podcasts start out in someone's kitchen and it's quite a, a massive leap to go from doing that to then suddenly being on stage in front of thousands of people also as you say like radio is radio but I don't know if you ever watched the live episode of the only way is Essex and it was just <laughs> it was can I just say I, I don't I don't know if I can say but when but when you were coming on to this initially you were listening to Gemma Collins dulcet tones I'm not going to say why but I'm just like I feel like maybe Towie is like your your secret pleasure maybe not so secret Towie's on my brain for work purposes so I've been starting <laughs> at the beginning which by the way is amazing I think it's like the best telly that's ever been made Oh, the first one of series one of Towie is just, it's genius. Absolutely genius. But the live episode, not so good. So basically, I think people like to think that you just like float into the studio and chat a bit of shit and upload it. But actually, it (laughs) takes quite a lot more than that. And I think in live episodes, you can somewhat see the fraying of there being no behind the scenes element. Pandora, since the Hilo finished, you have been a busy lady. Uh, you published your debut book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? And would you explore everything from the explosion of wellness to the rise of cancel culture? And I'm just wondering, for you, was this something that you have been working towards for a long time? No, not at all. I definitely did not have an ambition to write a book. But what I did want to do is write more long form. Mm-hmm. I'd written a lot uh, for magazines and newspapers where you always have quite a tight word count. You can't really dive off and really dig into something. And there were a bunch of different things I wanted to write about. And I realized that a lot of them were relating to the same thing, which is basically about the way we lived our lives. You know, mm-hmm. this idea of choice and the way in which the pressures of this generation because every generation's had its pressure. It's not that I think millennial women have it harder at all. I'm just interested in the lenses through which we kind of make our decisions and how those decisions are refracted. And so I just realized that there were kind of a lot of things that were all relating to one another, whether it was fast fashion or WhatsApp communication or the way that we talk to one another online. Mm. But it all came together quite quickly. I had the idea and then I found out I was pregnant. So it was kind of a bit of a race against 
time it, absolutely not an ideal way by the way to write <laughs> um, I remember when my water's broken I was like no I haven't met my deadline go away and my sister's a midwife and she kept on being like don't worry you'll have a really long labor she basically kept making all these empty promises that she of course couldn't <laughs> that she fulfill. couldn't keep it yeah so annoyingly that didn't work it came before I finished it but no it wasn't something I'd planned for ages I sort of just saw it as an extension of some of the journalism that I was doing and since writing it I've tried to do a bit more kind of long form bits Mm. and actually now as well the kind of podcasting I do is more long form because it's well one that I did last year and another one I'm working on now are audio documentaries so you end up kind of writing sort of 100 pages of script by the end so it almost feels like you're working on a book it's just a very different type of writing. Before I talk about some of the other podcasts you did do a podcast to go alongside the book doing it right why did you want to have that to accompany it? Yes, yeah, so that's how it kind of started because I couldn't do a book tour and I really wanted to have conversations with interesting people. So it wasn't actually really related to the book in that we didn't talk about the book at all. I just mm. interviewed people who could talk about some of the themes in the book. So like Alan de Botton on the difference mm. between optimism and hope and Julia Samuel talking about kind of living losses, she calls them, which is like the grief of change. And then I actually did another series last summer because I just enjoyed doing it so much. Just I read a lot of nonfiction and it was fun to be able to have a place to talk to nonfiction writers about themes. So in the recent one we did, I had a sociologist called Norina Hertz talking about loneliness and how that's been an epidemic long before the pandemic. I found that really fascinating. And a philosopher called Amir Srinivas and who wrote a book called The Right to Sex, which really kind of exploded and had lots of love and lots of criticism in equal measure. And so that made it a really exciting book to read and to talk to her about and completely turned on its head my ideas of sort of dating and dating apps and stuff like that. So, and I'll definitely do a third series. I kind of like doing one a year and it's like my little solo passion project and it just slots in alongside the other stuff that I'm doing. News reports and anecdata consistently inform us that the women who fare best on dating apps are white women and those who fare the worst are dark-skinned black women. And it's been said about Love Island too that black women always get picked last. You put it so succinctly in your book when you wrote, Online dating and especially the abstracted interfaces of Tinder and Grindr, which distill attraction down to the essentials, face, height, weight, age, race, witty tagline, has arguably taken what is worst about the current state of sexuality and institutionalised it on our screens. Could you talk a little bit about the politics of desirability and, as you put it, how we coax our sexual imagination into a new place? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, one thing to say about dating apps and and Love Island is that in in some ways they just kind of inherit and magnify what already pre-existed in our sexual culture. So Love Island and dating apps didn't invent sexual racism. It it didn't invent the sexual hierarchy, the hierarchy of desirability um, that you see among women or among men, right? So you have a lot of sexual racism directed against uh, black women, especially, uh, as you said, dark-skinned black women. You you have a huge amount of sexual racism against Asian men. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very complicated um, phenomenon. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It feels like one of the themes throughout all your work is just you're naturally a very curious person. I think so. I think I've got a bit of a restless mind and I'm always interested in other people's jobs you know when you go to dinner and you say what do they do and you go oh no I don't talk about that and I'm like no I do I do I want yeah, you to yeah. try and explain to me the difference between insurance and reinsurance because I still don't understand <laughs> so yeah I, I think I am quite curious it's a nice way of saying nosy isn't it yeah <laughs> so I want to talk about two other podcasts before I continue on with your list of recommendations because they're very different but again it comes up with this theme of curiosity and kind of getting to the the heart of things you've got Pieces of Brittany which was released last year I feel like a second series is needed Pandora since then <laughs> no I think we will leave leave Brittany to be the voice of all of that I know the timing of that was crazy because I mean we had no idea that any other documentaries were coming out or that there was that court case that was going yeah. to be happening in July. So it became, yeah, very much a kind of news story. And we were sort of writing alongside it and trying to keep up with it, which was just completely bonkers because there was only three of us working on it. But yeah, that was my first foray into audio documentary, which is, I'm quite nerdy about the differences because it's really different to podcasting. It's, yeah, true. it's, you know, so much research. And I absolutely loved that. It was just completely fascinating. Going back just to that time, culture Uh in the early noughties because there was just so much going on then I actually only started listening to it this week and I couldn't believe how quick I was into it and I don't know is it the sounds that are used or the voices and maybe when you hear clips of Britney's voice in your ears more so than just seeing her on TV it connects to you in a different way have you found the difference between the audio and visual when you're working it was obviously really odd knowing that there were lots of telly documentaries coming out but we didn't know ahead of it and I obviously felt a bit competitive I Mm. I don't like doing stuff that everyone else is doing I would always rather try and do something different Mm. so I was like oh God, no, I don't want to be doing what everyone else is doing. And I did love the New York Times documentary. But then there were a few others that for me didn't land. And I think for me, why I didn't connect with them and what we wanted to do with this is we wanted to keep rooting it in like really specific detail and context, like Mm -hmm. what was going on in culture at that time. Like how did that shape Britney and how did Britney shape the way that we look at women and young women in the public eye and stuff? And that's kind of the thing that I find most fascinating. You know, lots of people would say, oh God, you know, do you know everything about Brittany now? And are you obsessed with her? And I'm not, I don't even, I don't know if I'm even following her on Instagram. I felt desperately sorry for her. And I think her situation was incredibly unfair. Mm. And I'm, you know, completely in sympathy for her, but I wasn't obsessed with her. I wasn't writing it as a Brittany stan. I was writing it, I think, as someone who's just quite fascinated by what was going on when I was a teenager mm-hmm. that time is a time I return to again and again actually is the early noughties just because the advent of the internet becoming a mainstream presence just had such enormous ramifications for everything I think it's it's also the human aspect and I think what you did particularly with pieces of Brittany is sometimes we forget the human element and just to bring things back to that human element and I know I think it must be about 10 years ago when I first started working with MTV and you're interviewing different people, and I remember being told I was going to interview Britney Spears one day. And you're kind of like, oh my God, Britney Spears. And I remember, and it's interesting drawing what you just said, you kind of felt sad for her. I, I've i never come away from an interview and felt a weird sadness as opposed to the excitement of meeting this superstar because I walked into that room and I remember thinking, this is just a girl who's not that much older than me, just she's way more successful. There was something there that wasn't there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I just remember going there really excited and I interviewed her and I was like, this is, something didn't feel right. It didn't sit and sit well with me. And I remember just being, I don't know. And I'd interviewed quite a lot of other people, women at that time. And was that and when was she sadness. was in conservatorship then? Must so it would have been. been, and we didn't know that. We didn't know that. I didn't even know what that would have, what that word meant back then. Like, what's quite weird is it really? It wasn't a secret. I had known she was in one, but I don't think I understood how restrictive it was, yeah. and, or what that meant, what it involved, yeah. especially the f- financial side of things. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the biggest issue, and that's something that I actually found really interesting as well. Like, we could have told so much more legal detail about it, but we were just conscious that we just didn't have the time to go into that. But yeah. 
it, something that's really interesting is that the kind of only equivalent in the UK is a guardianship and you yeah. can't monetize a guardianship. It's not a for-profit job. Whereas in the US, I mean, there's that film with Rosamund Pike. She runs this like racket where she... Oh, with the old people. Yeah. She takes their, and she um, takes over their money. Yes. That's incredible. What's that called? I care a lot. I care a lot. That was it. Yeah. So she kind of persuades doctors to give them diagnoses of dementia and stuff like that. She gets the guardianship and she takes their money. And I mean, that's meant to be a sort of, I don't know, a horror film, a satire, whatever you want to call it. But it's not a million miles away from... It's not a million miles away, no. No, it landed at a good time, that film, actually. One of the topics when it comes to podcasting that comes up a lot, and also by people I never expected to come up with, is crime podcasts. I mean, they are huge in the UK. And you've done a podcast, The Missing. Tell me what made you put your hand to this. Is it the journalist inside you? What made you turn to true crime? So this is more unusual for me than my other projects in that this was very much brought to me by a production company called What's the Story Sounds. It wasn't something I came up with myself and I host it. I don't do the research on it. So I always feel very grateful to be brought into it because I haven't done like the slogging in the background. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really happy to be involved in it because I just think it's such a, of everything I do, it's like the most ethically sound thing because it's just there's only meaningful value in it. You know, missing people are found in collaboration with, well, sorry, not found, but their cases are found through the missing mm -hmm. people charity. You know, they put forward all these people's stories and then what's the story sounds will shape them with family members and then locate international, which is a volunteer investigation specialist made up of ex-police detectives and criminology students will then look into these cases. So it's a real collaboration and the only objective is to raise awareness of these cases and encourage the public to come forward with new information or perhaps, you know, for them to learn of cases they didn't know before. So I just feel really, really lucky to get to voice it. And it's doing really well. It's really interesting doing something that's not culture. I haven't worked in the crime space before. It's something that so many people come up to me about on the streets, but it's quite quiet online. You know, it's not something that I would get tweeted about that often. So it's a very different beast to say Britney or the Hilo, which was kind of extremely online, as mm -hmm. young people would say. It's just been something that's kind of really, really built an audience. And as you say, Yes, people who think of it as true crime, because I'm just absolutely not a crime head at all. I don't read it. I don't watch it. I don't listen to it. I sort of didn't realize, as you say, what an appetite there uh. is for that. And because I know why we're making it, weirdly, I don't think about it as true crime. I think of it as just these family stories that are, you know, really devastating and that we want people to learn about. Yeah. But I think the listener experience, there's an element of thrill to it I think that doesn't mean that they don't care about the people that are missing but you're you're waiting for the twist mm. it was May the 11th 2006 and Luke was looking forward to a night out in the nearby small town of Woodbridge it was a Thursday and Luke had taken the Friday off of work he packed a small bag and said goodbye to his mum he was laughing and I just said don't drink and drive because he had this you know he had this new motorbike but no, I won't. And um, yeah, that's literally the last thing I said to him. And you know, he got on his bike, um, whizzed off, and me and Alicia went to have supper. And that, that literally was the last time we ever saw Luke alive. I wasn't worried about Luca at all. Um, you know, I mean, the, the motorbike was still quite novel. Um, so I was obviously quite concerned about uh, it's, I don't know, eight miles from Hoseley, our house, into Woodbridge. But I wasn't worried in any other capacity. I mean, Luke went, went regularly to Woodbridge um, and went out with his friends. I wouldn't say Luke was streetwise in any way, but I think he thought he was. I think Luke was quite trusting of people that that perhaps he shouldn't have been. Gosh, if I'd known what what was about to happen, I literally I would have knocked Luke out and tied him up. I wouldn't have let him out. But you can't you can't live that way with young young people. You know, you well, I just never considered anything bad was going to happen. 
it's the story behind it, isn't it? I, I remember I was, I was working on a TV show and the floor manager came up to me and I just put out a podcast with a comedian and um, this comedian just listens to true crime. Like all the time. And you just wouldn't think that's what they, li- all they listen to is true crime, murder cases. Really fun researching that because I spent a whole week just listening to really horrific stories. But this um, floor manager came up to me and went, uh, so me and a few of the others, uh, we have a group where we just talk about true crime podcasts. Do you want to join it? Do you have any other recommendations? Because we saw you did on the podcast. And I was like, this underground thing had been happening for a few years. I didn't know. And because I'd mentioned it once, suddenly I was going to be in- included in this group. But it's huge. And people oh, who don't necessarily no, think would listen to it. But there's loads out there. Mm. There's one in the US, which is kind of the closest podcast to The Missing, called The Vanished, I think. Mm-hmm. But there's loads on telly as well. Yeah. It's just, yeah, people just love it. Has it made you more, as you said, you you weren't the person normally who would listen to that kind of podcast. Has it made you kind of more interested in that particular realm? Not really, to be honest. I love making the show and I feel very passionately about long-term missing people, which I just didn't, I didn't know about long-term missing people, actually. I thought people were either found or they weren't found. I didn't realise that their cases could just remain open indefinitely, mm. which means, of course, there's no closure for the families. So I now, I now feel passionately about that. And I would love to be involved in the podcast for as, as long as they'll have me. We've just released series three. But no, I haven't, I haven't become a crime junkie. Also because there's only so many hours in the day, I think. I don't think I've got time to have a new hobby right now. Very, very true. Well, I'm going to go back to your list of recommendations. And uh, one of the things you mentioned with when you did the high low, you kind of felt like you were keeping up to date with what was going on. Because sometimes when you're working on these long form projects, you don't necessarily get to kind of keep up to date day to day. But one podcast that you mentioned is The Week Unwrapped. Tell me about The Week Unwrapped. I love this podcast. And mm. I don't know if it's a bit of an underground thing or a sleeper hicks. It's not something that I really talk to other people about or I've seen shouted about online mm. and stuff. But it's just really, really well informed. What The Week Unwrapped does, it takes, I mean, this is literally their top line, I know off by heart. They take three pieces of news from around the world that weren't front page stories, but have ramifications for the way we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And so that can be really random. And then they'll explain the story to you and explain how it impacts you, the listener, or how it taps into kind of a bigger theme about the way we live. And it's just completely fascinating. There's a lot of global news stories that I would have never heard of. Mm-hmm. It's a real mix. It's just really well researched, really well informed. Kari, what's the story? There's been an outcry this week after it emerged that a guidance handbook had been given to trainee barristers at a London-based university, the BPP University, warning them that they risk being docked points in exams for wearing short skirts or, quote, kinky boots. It said women must have nothing showing above the knee. Men can get docked a point for wearing colourful socks. Showing a bra loses you three points. Yeah, you have to have a double-breasted jacket if you're a gentleman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And no, no knees no on chest. No breasted jacket if you're a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this guidance handbook was leaked by a legal news blog called Legal Cheek mm-hmm. and um, was widely mocked. Yeah, I think it raises interesting questions about to what extent people can be told how to dress at work. Okay. This is, we've Look, seen this arise again and again. Let's have that discussion in a minute about <laughs> what you can wear at work. And I should say, in the interest of uh, explaining what we're all wearing right now, that two of us, are, three of us are in T-shirts <laughs> today. <laughs> uh, I'll let you guess who's the smartest dressed. Um, but we're talking about the court here. And, you know, far be it from me to call the justice system conservative in nature. But isn't a dress code actually entirely sensible when you're a court professional? They are training people to present in court. I was willing to go along with this until I got to the words kinky boots, at which point you just go, for God's sake, you know, it's such an outdated view that any woman in long boots looks like a tart, basically. It's fine. But it does include coloured socks as well. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, really, isn't that the male equivalent of kinky boots? I mean, I agree the word kinky is ridiculous. They open each episode with the question to any new guests with, tell me something about yourself, which I wouldn't be able to know if I Googled you. So I'm going to throw this one to you, Pandora. Tell me something I wouldn't know about you if I Googled you. I can ride a unicycle. My first question, why? Because when I was 10, I was in a drama club and I played a clown and they said, someone needs to learn to ride a unicycle so that they can unicycle on from the wings. And I said, okay, I will. And you took that on? And so I did. And I learned in about three weeks. And I can still do it. I don't have my unicycle on me. It's at my parents' house. But sometimes I think... Oh, you oh, actually please. have a unicycle? Yeah. But I don't know if I'm a bit big for it now. So I had one when I was 10. I borrowed one. And then my parents 
bought a secondhand one for me when I was about 12. And I've got that one somewhere. I think the tires are probably down. I'm going to dig it out though. It's a good skill. It's a great skill. Has it ever come up since then where the skill has come useful? Absolutely not. I was like, we want to do this uh, new TV show, this new podcast, but the person has to be able to unicycle. That's the only problem. That would really show that podcasting had was reaching new lows, <laughs> wouldn't it? If We've got the USP. It's that you record it while unicycling. Uh, no, it's not remotely useful to anything else, but it is a niche skill. Where do you listen to podcasts? So I think this is why I don't listen to loads of podcasts, if I'm honest, Mm -hmm. because the only time I would listen to them is when I go walking and... Unicycling, which doesn't happen And unicycling. And I I don't actually leave my desk as much as I should. I am in a real work hole at the moment, so I don't feel like I'm actually striding around that much. But that's when I would listen to it. I'm never organised enough for when I'm in the bath, because I just tend to have a book, you see. Mm -hmm. If I'm on the train, I just read a book. I've never downloaded them ready to go, so they're never there when I want them. You know, I've done that before a few times when I'm on the train, especially going up to Scotland and back from Scotland, and the signal is a bit shit. And I'm like, oh, great, I listened to a podcast. I should have downloaded it before I got on the train. I always remember too late. Yeah, I'm rubbish at all of that. I think it's because I've normally got a book that I'm either really into or I need to read for work. And so... A lot of the time when I think people might listen to podcasts, I'm reading. So yeah, hilariously, like I'm actually not your go-to person for podcasts. I make a fair amount of them, but I'm like totally not an expert on what's out there. You don't have to be an expert. The great thing is it's all about choice, but what you like. And um, you have brought me with your next recommendation, a podcast that we haven't talked about uh, on the show. Um, It's a new one, Sweet Bobby. Have you not talked about it? I'm no. so intrigued by that because that was like a 2021 obsession, I think, for people. Everyone seemed to be talking about Sweet Bobby. So that is a podcast by Tortoise, which is the slow media online publication. And it's a six-parter about this catfishing, this really strange catfishing case. I mean, you'll probably summarize it better than I will. So basically, without giving too much away, it's about this young British woman, large family and friends network, full of cousins, you know, lots lots of friends. And basically via Facebook, she becomes an online chum of Bobby, who's a cardiologist, lives in Brighton. Uh, his brother used to date her second cousin. And it's, I guess, a shocking story, a scary story about how little we know about what information we put up there and what information we have from there. And it's almost like a movie. It's 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 gripping. It's told really, really well. I really like the Alexi Mistrus who tells the story. I think it's just brilliant. And Kira, the woman that is at the centre of it, or, you know, has got this relationship with Bobby, is really brilliant to listen to as well. But then it sort of turns into a live investigation when they mm. try to find out who Bobby is. How much do you know about the person you love? I love you, sweets. And who they really are? I wish I was there with you. This is a story about a young couple who fall for each other despite everything. When it comes to matters of the heart, I said we can all be a bit crazy sometimes. And about how their love turned into something much darker. She went from being a vibrant person to being a shadow of herself. She was literally a shadow. And I kept screaming, why? You've stolen 10 years of my life. How could you be so sick? It's a story of manipulation on an epic scale. This case, oh my God, where to start? What the hell has been going on? If you put it on the television, there'd be a lot of people that would say it was completely unrealistic. It's about who we are online, how little we know. So what do you mean you don't trust yourself, sweet? And uncovering a 10-year scam. The only thing I have is truth on my side. I'm Alexi Mostris. I'm a journalist at Tortoise Media. And this is Sweet Bobby. Oh, Sweet, 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 sweet. This is killing me. I love you. A friend of mine listened to this. She listened to it all in one go. Did you spread this out? Goodness, yeah, lots of people binge. I binge when I watch stuff on telly because I kind of resent watching it. I feel very guilty when I watch TV. I think of all the other things I should be doing. That doesn't mean, by the way, that I don't watch plenty of it. I just Mm -hmm. have like a tortured relationship with it. So with telly, I try and get it all done. I'm like, phew, box set done. Podcasts. Did I binge it? I couldn't. It came out weekly. So you wait, like old school. Yeah. You waited for it. 
I think it depends what it is. Like we very much made the Britney documentary for people to binge it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think binging something loses a bit of its like artistry and suspense maybe. Also, sometimes you can get too into it. I There's a true crime podcast called Man at the Window. Oh, right. And based on a true story. And I think I, I listen to too much of it in one go. Do you ever like listen to something that's too dark? So like every now and then I'm like, I need just to listen to a bit of Spice Girls or something, do you know, just to balance this out. <laughs> Totally. It's like when I feel jaded, I need to watch old episodes of Sex and the City or Friends just to like palate cleanse. What's your view on just like that? I actually really enjoy it. Setting aside like the obvious criticisms, like, yes, obviously it would be great if Samantha was there. Mm -hmm. And yes, like the kind of newfound diversity is quite clunky. But I love seeing women in their 50s on telly. I just can't remember the last time I saw women in their 50s talking about stuff like menopause and husbands dying and going grey and stuff like that. I also think Carrie looks like the best she's ever looked. I'm just obsessed with her hair. It's really interesting as well. I saw that there was a meme going around the comparison where when the Golden Girls started, they were the same age as they are now. And to me, the Golden Girls may as well have been 100 years old. They had like permed hair and they were in like moo-moos. And I think they were a year or two younger than, than Carrie and co. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing to see, isn't it? There's a really good podcast that The Guilty Feminist, who's been on this podcast, does. Yeah. And just like that, talking about it. So that's what I love about podcasts. Most TV shows now have a podcast spin-off somehow. Wait, so Deborah does one about... And just, just like, that. like that. Yeah. And what's it called? The Guilty Feminist watches And Just Like That. Wow. Did she do that about other shows? I don't know if she's done one about other ones before. Ooh. Well, I want Dolly and another writer called Caroline O'Donoghue do one called Sentimental in the City, which is just a really funny deep dive into Sex in the City. And... I'd quite like them to do one on and just like that. Every single show that's on though, so even if it's a live or a reality show or a big entertainment show, they all have that spin of podcast. And it is, I guess, that space to talk more. Do you feel that we're coming to a stage where maybe we're oversaturating the podcast market or can you do such a thing, Pandora? Oh, I think everything's oversaturated. Everything. I think there's too many books, I think there's too many shows, I think there's too many podcasts. I think we're definitely at like peak cultural consumption and it becomes an obligation for lots of people, which is why, you know, I find myself sitting through like 10 episodes or something in a row rather than like opting out. But I also think it's on balance, not a terrible problem to have. Last question. And I have to ask you because Sex and the City did it. They ended. And then years later, they came back. The Hilo. Would you ever revisit? Oh, good question. Um, I don't know. You know, I think right now we're just really having a breather doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. But... I mean, never say never. I mean, I'm probably not going to retire till I'm about 90, so I'm going to have to fill the years with some stuff, aren't I? <laughs> we're all going to live till we're 110. There's many a true crime podcast you could just listen to. You could listen to that until you're 90. There's so many of them. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'll be doing that as well then. So I don't know. No plans to, but sort of no plans to not. Just no plans. <laughs> just no plans. Never say never. Uh, Pandora Sykes, thank you so much for joining me on Castaway. Thank you. And that's it. Another episode down as we delve deep into my guest's audio world. I hope you get cast away by today's top podcast picks. Yeah, I just said that, sorry. All of the podcasts we've mentioned today are included in the episode show notes. Now, if you love this conversation as much as I did, please share your thoughts by leaving a review. And if you'd like to receive weekly installments of Cast Away delivered straight to your phone, hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's it from me. Take care. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.